Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's March 30, 2021. Today's show is Pushing Lincoln Left, Thaddeus Stevens as Revolutionary. Our opening song is Variations on America, composed by a 17-year-old Charles Ives. It's performed here by the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Eugene Ormandy and released in 1969. Though many consider it a difficult piece, I've said performing it was almost as much fun as playing baseball, which he also did with skill and success. And though Charles Ives was one of the great composers of the early 20th century, and his Concord Sonata is well known and highly regarded, it was as a pioneer in the insurance business that many of his own friends and family knew him. The musical imaginary of Charles Ives will accompany us throughout. Born into poverty in rural Vermont, the Pennsylvania politician, Thaddeus Stevens, was among the first to see the Civil War as an opportunity for a second American Revolution, a chance to remake the country as a true democracy. One of the foremost abolitionists in Congress in the years leading up to the war, he was a leader of the Young Republican Party's radical wing, fighting for anti-slavery and anti-racist policies long before party colleagues like Abraham Lincoln endorsed them. During the Reconstruction era following the Civil War, Stevens demanded equal civil and political rights for black Americans, rights eventually embodied in the 14th and 15th Amendments. But while Stevens in many ways pushed his party and public opinion towards equality, his radical notion to confiscate all large plantation property and give it to the formerly enslaved was a bridge too far. In what follows, we explore the contradictions inherent in certain economic doctrines, particularly that of the yeoman farmer as the backbone of an egalitarian nation, and the assertion that industrialization was the key to economic prosperity. No one's a freeholder who works in a factory. Our guest, Bruce Levine, happily sets the antebellum political and economic stage for us. Bruce Levine is the best-selling author of four books on the Civil War era, including The Fall of the House of Dixie and Confederate Emancipation, and The Spirit of 1848, German Immigrants, Labor Conflict, and the Coming of the Civil War. His new book and our primary text for today's conversation is Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary Fighter for Racial Justice, published by Simon & Schuster. Our first segment might seem secondary to the program proper, but it seeks to place the discipline, practice, and publication of history in political context. Our example is the backlash to the 1960s and early 70s in the United States, in which Bruce Levine plays a small but important part. Our focus is on the near-universal acclaim and promotion of the book Time on the Cross, The Economics of American Negro Slavery, by the economists Robert Fogel and Stanley Engerman, published in 1974 and the almost immediate critique of the book by Herbert Gutman, titled Slavery and the Numbers Game, which highlights its myriad errors and false assumptions regarding empirical data. And now, pushing Lincoln left, Thaddeus Stevens as revolutionary on Interchange on WFHB. You introduced a reprint. Uh, was it Gutman's Slavery and the Numbers Game? You're one of the three people I think who's written. 
Uh, Slavery in the Numbers Game uh, was a book-length critique of time on the cross, the economics of American Negro slavery. This is That was written in 74. And then one of those economists, uh, Robert Fogel, went on to win a Nobel Prize 15 years after that. And you, you, of course, note this in your introduction. You know, we can sort of go back to that point, too, and say, what's going on at that point? You know, why are we arguing about the economics of slavery in the early 1970s? Is it simply a kind of reactionary moment that produces these kinds of things? Is something like this similar to that, this kind of book about economics of slavery? Well, that's that's an aspect of the book's reception. I'm quite sure that's not the motivation uh, driving those two authors, one of whom was Stanley Engerman. Both of these men were very progressive in their politics. Robert Fogel had a very radical background, and Gutman firmly believed that neither of them was a racist. Fogel was kind of a historical contrarian, and Fogel and Engerman were on a crusade uh, to demonstrate, to prove to their own satisfaction, that historians on one topic after another had made assertions that could not be backed up by a careful study of the numbers. Um, And so, if I remember correctly, Robert Fogel argued that contrary to conventional wisdom, railroads were not necessary to the expansion of American capitalism in another book. And so here's yet another one claiming to set aright historians' errors. I think subsequently, of course, uh, this book was badly uh, received by many historians and many set out to demonstrate that, in fact, among other things, they had the numbers wrong. And what Herbert Gutman set out to argue is that they were wrong to assume that whatever the standard of living of the slaves, uh, whatever the level of productivity on the plantations, they had not demonstrated, as they claimed they had, that slaves were willing participants in the entire enterprise. To me, that was the most important point that Gutman was making. Yeah, it became, an, um, again, an interesting way in which we argue about, you know, the uh, participation of the enslaved person you know, as a way to kind of frame them in and out of this contract space, right? Uh, the idea of uh, free labor versus uh, slave labor, right? And then how we understand that participation. The plantation master had to be a good master to make uh, slaves do good work, right? So that's how you argue backwards into the fact that that's right. surely life wouldn't have been that terrible. They had to be good masters to make good workers. That's right. And if you recall, they therefore argue as a corollary that the incidence of whipping right. was much lower than was uh, generally held by historians. Historians pointed out, number one, that they got those numbers wrong. But if I remember what Herb had said, and incidentally, Both Herb and Stan Angerman were supervisors of my PhD work. What Herb demonstrated was not only that more slaves were whipped than Time on the Cross was saying, but that when you whip somebody in front of the entire enslaved population on a farm or plantation, that has a powerful coercive effect, a way out of proportion to the percentage of people actually feeling the lash. It's not about being a good master, eliciting good work. It's about coercing work at a certain level uh, by force or the threat of force. Right, right, right. I guess Vogel uh, and Engerman didn't think of that particular thing or decided that there wasn't a number that they could put on that, right? The coercion couldn't be quantified particularly. I guess not. (laughs) I I think you can get so preoccupied with one set of numbers that you cannot see the larger picture. (laughs) 
You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Pushing Lincoln Left with historian and author Bruce Levine, whose new book is a political biography of Thaddeus Stevens, Lincoln's Egalitarian Conscience. We've been talking about the way a 1974 book about the economics of slavery, called Time on the Cross, successfully pushed back in the era of the counterculture. It's hard for me not to feel it being willful. You kind of have to push against the the popularity of the book at the same time. Like when you read these things, now you're like, oh my gosh, this book was so popular, Time on the Cross, right? You, um, uh, newspapers reviewed it, Newsweek Time, Atlantic Monthly, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, promoted by the Reader's Digest, I think you pointed out in your introduction. You know, it's sort of slotted into the place that the particular ideological moment called for in a certain way. I think you're right about what drove much of the positive perception, or better to say, reception. Mm-hmm. of that book. It was indeed, ha-ha, the advocates of the African-American cause uh, have once again been caught out uh, exaggerating what we, the white people, did to them. And there was a lot of that in the 70s, just as there's not only a little bit of that today. Right. Um, so yes, I think that does speak to much of the positive reception and the motive for the positive reception. I have a similar response to public choice theory, which finds its home in Mercatus. And it's just hard for me to then separate it from that. And again, that's from this period too, uh, mid-60s, late-60s, early-70s, where there are ways in which people are trying to write things that put other ideas back in their place. I think Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa came out in 72. And to me, this seems like, again, you know, reactions against those kinds of books, those kinds of explorations. One part of the culture was reacting in much the same way you'd imagine the South reacting. I think in writing history, but also in writing recent history, one of our responsibilities is to try to accurately imagine how people think who approach things very differently from the way we do. Sometimes it means acknowledging that their motives by our lights are pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it means, however, recognizing that others think differently. Their whole thought process is molded differently. And if you want to understand another era, you've got somehow to try to uh, get past your dislike of that era and try to see how they thought. That, of course, does not mean... Uh, excusing the way they thought, but uh, since understanding does not mean excusing, but it's part of the job of a historian. I think when we try to understand someone or some group or some particular perspective that does make sense to us, if we're if we're sitting on the side of of you know, you know saying that people are equal, that there are no no distinct differences, you know that race race is a construct. You know, we stand over here and we say these things, but we can also look at history, historical actors, figures that say the same things from these same periods. Indeed, in the uh, let's say the antebellum era, mm-hmm. there were people saying. Uh, all this racial stuff is garbage. All this is uh, based on nothing except prejudice. And there are white people and certainly black people, but black people would have been in danger saying this out loud in the slave states. There are white people trying to say it in the slave states. So we have to ask ourselves, why didn't the vast majority of white people listen to them? And what, what answer should we come up with? that they heard it and knew it was correct, knew the critique was correct, but rejected it 
simply out of self-interest and prejudice? Well, that's certainly a factor. But they're also living in a society that is dinning in their ears from the pulpit, in the newspapers, in the books, uh, from every quarter, the contrary interpretation of history. And that makes a big difference. Yeah, well, you point to an important thing there, right? The production of ideas, right? The the way in which we are talking now about books, newspapers, pulpits, and the production of, a, of an idea or ideas that's, a, that's produced by a particular class and particular interests. It's time for a break. Here's another from Charles Ives, again performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra under the direction of Eugene Ormandy. This is the second movement of Three Places in New England, titled Putnam's Camp, Reading, Connecticut, named after a Revolutionary War general, Israel Putnam, in which Ives quotes from a number of patriotic songs such as Marching Through Georgia, Masses in the Cold Ground, The Battle Cry of Freedom, Yankee Doodle, The Star Spangled Banner, and even Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyries. Stay with us for more on the Civil War Revolutionary, Thaddeus Stevens, when Interchange returns. to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is pushing Lincoln left with historian and author Bruce Levine, whose new book is a political biography of Thaddeus Stevens published by Simon & Schuster. We begin to paint the portrait of why Stevens matters in his time and ours. Why a book on Thaddeus Stevens and and why now? Thaddeus Stevens has always been a hero of mine. From the days when I first read about him in college, um, I am somebody who was born and raised in the era of the mid-century civil rights movement. And uh, that cause has always been close to my heart. And uh, the Civil War was an era in which these issues, of course, dominated Um, life and dominated politics. And so I was drawn to the study of that era. And uh, Thaddeus Stevens was the most important, uh, the most visible, uh, and to some degree, the most consistent leader of the radical Republican uh, faction of the Republican Party. And I wanted to explore how he was formed. How did someone come to be this individual? 
How did someone come to be Thaddeus Stevens, who before the great majority, even of the Republicans, and that was a radical party for its day, the Republican Party, comparatively speaking. How did someone come to find himself on the left wing of that party? So his own evolution was a subject that I wanted to explore. But also, how did someone like that bring this somewhat back to the subject we've been discussing up until now? How did he manage to apparently change minds? How did he manage to exert influence over a party that reacted to most of his ideas at first as though they were wild-eyed out of uh, this world beyond consideration and come eventually to accept many of them as their own. And that was a study of political leadership, which has always been of interest to me. And of course, uh, the timing is not accidental. Although the book project began before the massive protests against the police killing of unarmed black people, um, it's still, uh, uh, it, it began in a period when there was, for obvious reasons, heightened interest once again in the condition of African Americans and what their rights were and should be. And so exploring this earlier era, which I began to do long before this book, um, seemed to me a way to say some important things to a larger public. Do you think it was necessary to update Thaddeus Stevens? I mean, there are other biographies. Uh, I don't remember what the most recent was. One was in the late 90s, maybe? Hans Trafus, I think, mm -hmm. wrote the most recent uh, full-length biography. And in all of the biographies, there are at least 10 biographies written of Stevens since his death. And all of them contain valuable information. And I've always believed that a good historian stands on the shoulders of those who came before that we couldn't do what we do had not somebody else turned over some of the soil um, before us. But the major biographies of Stevens, even those that um, are view his accomplishments positively, did not present what I believe is the appropriate way to understand him and what he stood for. Virtually none of these biographies uh, go into any depth into his first 20 years of life. And so we don't know from those books who the young man was who moved to Pennsylvania. Uh, the more I looked into that, the more I became convinced that those early years were absolutely crucial mm -hmm. to understanding uh, Thaddeus Stevens at the time and uh, what made possible his further evolution. But also, I wanted to write a biography of someone who clearly, in my eyes, was a revolutionary and a revolutionary in the sense of seeking to bring into being a new form of society, or at least to spread uh, a, an existing society geographically while improving it at the same time. And I think that's clearly what Stevens did. Um, one could call him a capitalist or a bourgeois revolutionary. That's not the understanding that drives any of the three most recent biographies. Define for us a little bit more their bourgeois revolutionary or capitalist revolutionary. You know, we often don't put the two together, I suppose. Capitalism and revolution is more reactionary uh, in, its, in its energies, I suppose. So what, what makes uh, Stevens a, um, a capitalist revolutionary? One of the reasons those words may not sound like they belong together may be because we are focused on uh, capitalism as it exists today. But capitalism plays a different role in the world today than it did 200 years ago 
or 300 years ago or 400 years ago. Even the most revolutionary critics of capitalism made a point repeatedly, and I'm thinking of Marx and Engels, of saying that this compared to previous systems is a liberatory transformation, a liberating form of society to move from the status of a human being owned by another to one that is legally free, cannot be sold, can have a family, can have uh, property, can have a vote, can have legal equality. That's a radical change along the road of human emancipation. That uh, And all those things did indeed tend to go along with the expansion of capitalism, as Stevens himself came to believe, and he was not alone in doing so. And of course, capitalism did not come into existence everywhere in the form of what we would think of as a revolution. That is a mass-based movement that has to engage in violence against the established order in order to bring this system into full being. But there were such events before the Civil War, to be sure, as people like Stevens and others knew, such as the great French Revolution of the late 18th century, and I would say the American Revolution of the 1770s and 80s was at least a partial capitalist revolution. The Civil War was a continuation of that revolutionary change. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Pushing Lincoln Left, and our guest is Bruce Levine, author of a new book about the Civil War revolutionary Thaddeus Stevens. We've been talking about the percolating revolutions of the era, what Levine calls capitalist revolutions, including the wave of revolutions that swept Europe in 1848. How do we perceive then what was happening in 1848 in in Europe and and thereabouts and how uh, the U.S., uh, the political class and the planter class in the U.S. felt about those particular developments? Uh, you raise a subject that was the focus of my first book, which was about Germans who had lived through the era of 1848, German-speaking Europeans who then came to the United States and had to confront uh, their own set of reactionary obstacles here. So I think the 1848 revolutions were attempts across the face of Europe to carry forward what I would call capitalist revolution. Um, They were, however, all defeated. Although, in each case, something of the achievement of the revolutionaries remains. But monarchy and aristocracy regains its purchase, albeit in a weakened form, just as had happened after the French Revolution of the 1780s and 90s. The political classes in the United States um, had varied responses. At the early stages of the 1848 revolution, when most of the uh, fighters were fighting under the flag of constitutional monarchy, uh, something much more moderate than eventually becomes the cause of those revolutions. There's widespread approval in the United States of those revolutions because um, Americans think, well, good, uh, Europeans are going to uh, transform their society in something closer to ours. And we know that ours is vastly superior to theirs. <laughs> mm-hmm. We don't believe in monarchies. We don't have hereditary aristocracies and so forth. 
But as 1848 moved forward, as the revolutions moved forward and deepened, and poorer and more oppressed layers came to the fore and began to make demands upon the status quo that impinged on the prerogatives of uh, merchants and manufacturers, uh, not only did those merchants and manufacturers in Europe draw back in horror, so did those in the United States. And slave owners drew back most quickly of all, because they were the most sensitive to critiques of uh, autocracy and repression. Let's do a little bit more with capitalism and Stevens, right? So the idea of capitalism versus uh, labor, which uh, and 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 he at the time a uh, proponent of uh, kind of the the yeoman freeholder. The freeholder is the best citizen. The freeholder would be someone responsible, and, and consequently, Stevens is always very suspicious of large cities uh, throughout his life, um, and in the 1830s. Stevens, as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Pennsylvania, wants to underrepresent the residents of cities in the state legislature and says so in no uncertain terms. Because they have no property. Because they have no property, uh, because they therefore can't be counted upon to use the vote responsibly. <laughs> right, right. So then we have to understand responsible to what? Right, responsible to freedom, to party, to prom, to to property, to you know these these become difficult questions. I get the idea, and the idea has uh, has a peculiar force to it when it can be simple, right? When you can say there's land, we should have land. Uh, each person with land will then be a responsible citizen who cares for that property and caring for that property understands that he doesn't want to impinge on others' property. That kind of thing. Um, exactly. But that becomes an impossibility generally, right? I mean, right. yeah. And so that idea kind of goes away. It doesn't, yes. the idea does not go away, right? The idea continues to this day. Yes, although it's also true, as you know, that um, the proportion of substantial property owners in the white population as a whole is declining over the uh, course of the first half of the 19th century. And it is the pressure of the property less. It is the pressure of the urban population that compels politicians to step back from this hoary old Republican small R doctrine that only property owners should be enfranchised. Let's understand republicanism too while we're at it, right? So what, is, what does it mean to be a Republican or what is republicanism? Well, in the broadest terms, a republic is a society where the government is to some degree uh, responsive to the population. I'm being deliberately vague because there's a whole spectrum of kinds of republics. But what they all have in common is that they do not have a hereditary ruler. And the land is not uh, usually held by hereditary aristocrats. So a Republican or Republicanism is the idea of ownership of productive property being the hallmark of the autonomous free citizen. And that goes back to ancient Greece and Rome. Uh, that's where those doctrines were really hammered out in the ancient world's republics. Um, and they came down to the more modern era by way of the Republican city-states of Italy and elsewhere in Europe. And central to the Republican doctrine, so i simply trying to say what a republic is, right. but Republican doctrine, that is uh, belief in how republics best function, uh, produced the idea we've been discussing, which is 
that those who own land are the most responsible citizens. Just as you say, they are the ones who, because they have a material stake in the status quo, can be trusted not to use their political power to infringe upon the property of their neighbors and to challenge the general contours of the status quo. And a corollary of all of that is that only more or less well-to-do individuals have the time, have the leisure, have the money to obtain an education and therefore become informed citizens. Again, all of that is incompatible with a democratic republic in which uh, the norm is the enfranchisement of the population, regardless of the individual's wealth, and for that matter, gender. Yeah, it's interesting how these detach from sort of realities of, of productive property, right? So if you, can, you can, again, see a freeholder who operates a, a property to live on the land in a sense, but that's not generally the sense of what we're talking about. You know, so Stevens uh, may have owned property. Stevens, you know, did own an, uh, an industrial, what is it, an ironworks of some kind. Yes. Um, you know, labor is always set to the side in these conversations. Most people who own property have people work their property. Indeed. And, you know, nobody really, like, that's not in these conversations, usually, right? Yes, that's true. It's time for another break and another part of Three Places in New England by Charles Ives, performed again by the Philadelphia Orchestra. This is the St. Gaudens in Boston Common, Colonel Shaw and his colored regiment. Again, this piece features many borrowings from 19th century American songs which have strong extra-musical associations. Mixing patriotic Civil War songs with old slave plantation songs created a vivid image honoring those who fell fighting for emancipation during the Civil War. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. In this segment of Pushing Lincoln Left, we hear how Thaddeus Stevens was a champion of the newfangled idea of the common school, made prominent by Horace Mann, who believed education should be universal, non-sectarian, and free. What could be wrong with that?
So education was key to Stevens as well, public education in particular. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. So Stevens grew up in New England, which was the first part of the country where public education became common. And no pun intended, they were known as common schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he moved to Pennsylvania, he found himself in a state where that was not the case. And as a member of the state legislature, uh, he participated in a debate over whether or not such a system of free, uh, that is to say, non-tuition-based public or common schools at at least the elementary level should be created. And such a bill was passed. It provoked a storm of protest from property owners throughout the state who had a very narrow view of the proper role of government um, in providing such services. Um, And basically, as Stevens himself summarized in criticizing the opponents of public education, their attitude was, if I don't have a child in school or a child of school age, I see no reason why I should be paying taxes to support one. Right. Still a common argument. (laughs) Well, that's right. Right, right. That's right. And Stevens had to make the case uh, why this was something that government needed to do for the entire population, that education for all was a benefit for all, whether or not one's children benefited directly from that, just as a whole series of things that people were already paying taxes to support were important to the society as a whole, even if not palpably to every taxpayer. So he follows, obviously, on uh, Horace Mann's ideas or promotes Horace Mann's ideas of common school, as you noted. Yes. Yeah. Uh, again, it's another interesting you know, dilemma of history, I suppose, or dilemma of how we perceive these particular uh, ideas. So I think it's in um, William Appleman Williams's Contours of American History, where Mann is presented as a, a person who sees education as an effective means of social control, which is not, an, again, an uncommon view of what public education does. Uh, to turn the lower orders away from property destruction, uh, to engage in a sort of uh, belief in uh, property and the ideas of property. So I think that's Williams. Uh, of course, you know, there's uh, the other perspective being that uh, education, you know, is is something of a guarantor of social mobility. You remind me of the debate that took place among historians about the genesis of public education during the 1960s, I think, and during the 1970s. And of course, this was what was known as the social control school that looked upon all sorts of reform as being basically uh, forms of manipulation by the elite in order to hold on to what they had. In other words, that all these reforms were basically top-down, conservative-oriented changes and did not represent progress. And other historians, myself included, believe that this was an exaggeration, that you can look upon almost every reform granted, every concession made by an elite from the point of view of its being a cagey tactic in order to contain more radical demands. But trade unions and working men's parties at the time believed that public education in the United States was something that working people needed, including and perhaps especially the propertyless, not simply to raise themselves up into the middle class, but to know what their own situation was, to understand how politics worked, and to more effectively organize in their own behalf. 
There are uh, obviously Indian schools, uh, quote-unquote, right? There was a clear intention there to you know, remove the Indian from the man, basically, right? And so in terms of institutions, we, we have to recognize there how they serve the particular ideologies of the day. And I think it's part of why I, why I find Stevens interesting. The way in which Stevens comes to be Stevens is that he wants to hold all as capable freeholders. All people in a free society have to be freeholders. And this isn't about race per se. It's about, it's about saying all men are equal, not women, of course, but all men are equal. And that's how we have a better society. And so his principle is as much an economic one. And he, he doesn't seem to see race in your particular telling. I know nothing about Stevens. I don't know if you've included or not included things that make Stevens more racist than he is. But this seems as a colorblind perspective to be one about the uh, capacity for people to be citizens. And it's connected to property. And all citizens have to have property. And it will take away that kind of oligarchical space. This is such a thorny issue. And it's a, such a complex issue, Doug. He does not at least I've never come across him giving a lengthy disquisition on the idea that race is a social construct. But he certainly does say that fundamentally, these people are no different from we. Insofar as they seem different in uh, behavior and condition, that is a result of what we have done to them. Mm -hmm. That is all social shaping. Um, so I believe Stevens, in that sense, is an absolute racial egalitarian. Uh, from an early date, and it's very unusual in that respect. Um, and when someone compares him to John Brown in, in that way, I think it's a fair comparison. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is historian and author Bruce Levine, whose new book, Out from Simon & Schuster, is Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. We've been discussing the ways Stevens challenged the public and imperiled his political career by always insisting on the necessity of economic and political freedom for black Americans. He repeatedly stuck his neck out uh, on the subject that we would call race, including, of course, as I said, back in the 1830s, when he opposed uh, state constitution precisely because it denied the vote to black men in Pennsylvania. That was not a, a shrewd public stance for somebody whose priority uh, was uh, just to get reelected. That was shooting yourself in the foot. He did it anyway. Stevens uh, fought against the Compromise of 1850 because it extended what he considered to be a brutal, intolerable regime. It nearly got him booted out of the Whig Party and effectively got him marginalized and incapable of being reelected by the Whigs uh, to the House of Representatives. So he did this over and over again. And so I think his record is pretty good mm -hmm. on the subject of race. But on the question of free labor... I don't think he ever reconciled what were, in effect, contradictory views uh, that he held. One was the Republican principle that we've talked so much about, that the best voters, let's say, are property of individuals. And the growth of manufacturing is a very positive thing, right, and should be uh, supported by the government because, famously, manufacturing takes place by vast numbers of propertyless individuals right. working for those who do have property. I never saw Stevens confront nor be challenged to confront that contradiction, that he was championing a system uh, that uh, seemed to 
required just the opposite kind of typical individual in society than those he seemed to prize the highest, at least in political terms. Um, one of the people he knew best said in an unpublished memoir that Stevens was not a profound uh, generator of new ideas. His skill was to take ideas that others had fashioned and present them most powerfully and fight for them most energetically. And I think that's probably uh, a fair judgment. And if it is, it might explain why Stevens' thinking did not go beyond the bounds that we've been discussing thus far. Yeah, you don't present him as, as a great thinker. You do see him sort of sticking on an idea and, and needing to stand on it as part of you know, his own sort of personal idea of what those principles are. Yeah. Consequently, uh, I think we also see him evolving on the subject of nativism. He's born into a state that is solidly Protestant and committed to Protestantism. And Protestantism is in that era, the religion um, most closely identified, by the way, with the capitalist revolutions going back to the 17th century in England, right. of course. And Catholicism is perceived by Protestants as a, a hopelessly authoritarian, pro-monarchical, pro-aristocratic religion. And consequently, the very democratic, comparatively speaking, state constitution that Vermont draws up for itself denies equal religious rights to Catholics. And again, that's the atmosphere in which uh, the young Thaddeus Stevens takes shape. So I think this seems to him like a given throughout much of his life, together with and reinforced by the fact that immigrants are tending to cluster in the large cities, which he already believes are breeding grounds of vice, uh, centers of anti-democratic thought. The immigrants are voting overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party, which is, on a national scale, the instrument of the Southern slave owners. And so, yeah, I'm, I think he does not see anything fundamentally wrong with allying himself with nativists for a long time. And then we start to see a change in him. We see him, for example, refusing or at least failing to object when the Republican Party in 1860 takes a firm stance against nativism and in favor of equal rights for immigrants that antagonizes nativists throughout the North. To our knowledge, Stevens doesn't make a peep of protest. And on the contrary, before long on the floor of the House of Representatives, he's defending Chinese immigrants in California from the oppressive treatment they are receiving from the California government. And by the way, from Republican leaders in California. So his his commitment to democracy grows over the course of time. And that's why also um, we see him at a certain point uh, endorsing women's suffrage. Yeah, I, I, I like the, the part about uh, California and the Chinese uh, because it's, um, you know, he, he, he makes reference to the, the, the sort of oppression and domination by Europe and England in terms of the opium wars. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that was impressive too. Yeah, that raised, that raised my eyebrows. It's time for a final break. This is Decoration Day, another Ives composition, performed here by Tamsin Whaley-Cohen on violin and Hugh Watkins on piano. 
Charles Ives never forgot the sights and sounds of the village cornet band marching to the cemetery in Danbury, Connecticut, on Decoration Day, what we now call Memorial Day. His father, George Ives, had served as a bandmaster in the Union Army and led the town bands after the Civil War. More with Bruce Levine on Thaddeus Stevens when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. For our final segment of Pushing Lincoln Left, we finally come to the part where Thaddeus Stevens pushes Lincoln left. To get black men in the army, to emancipate them from slavery, to get them political freedom, and to make them freeholders. failed to mention really slavery and Stevens's <laughs> primary role in moving us uh, into uh, into the Civil War or into Lincoln's um, you know finally using or allowing there to be uh, uh, black people in, in in the army and to ensure that you know it, freeing the, the enslaved people to fight for the army this became a, a necessity really um, but as you say throughout Stevens was there ahead of everybody all the time um, you know how did he take on the, like he became really a powerful political player when he got back into a, a, into office really at the tail end of his life. Um, it was like the essential thing he was born for almost to, to sort of push the nation in the right direction. Daddy Stevens lost his congressional seat because of his opposition to the compromise of 1850. And he stayed therefore out of politics until the end of the decade, until 1858. And he's enabled to get back his congressional seat precisely because the winds have changed so dramatically between those two events. In uh, the middle of the decade, the South compels the Democratic Party to pass a law, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which suddenly opens up to the possibility of the spread of slavery into large swaths of federal territory that had been ruled closed to slavery in an earlier compromise, the Compromise of 1820. And Northern reaction is explosive. Uh, this seems not only to endanger free labor society and its ability to spread into the West, it also seems to prove 
that no deal struck with the slave owners can be expected to survive, that they will take back anything that they are compelled to give at the first opportunity. And that massive hostile reaction that takes the form of mass meetings and protests all across the North forms the foundation of a brand new political party, the Republican Party, which is committed first and foremost to preventing the further spread of slavery. And that is a very profound commitment because preventing the spread of slavery, it is assumed North and South will eventually kill slavery even where it already exists because slavery is a system, again, Northerners and Southerners agree, that needs to expand in order to survive. And there are all sorts of political and economic and social explanations for that belief, but it is, for whatever reason, widely held. And so in this new, uh, much more pointed, much sharper Northern hostility to slavery, Thaddeus Stevens uh, joins this newborn party, helps to build it in Pennsylvania, is nominated by it for a congressional seat, wins handily in 1858, and then struggles to see its presidential candidate, its next presidential candidate, its second presidential candidate, Abraham Lincoln, elected. And of course, when Lincoln is elected, the Lower South begins to pull itself out of the Union, and before long, uh, the war is on. At which point, Stevens finds himself at odds with Abraham Lincoln over how this war ought to be waged. Lincoln shares the the assumption that is widespread in the North, including in the Republican Party, that the South has, the, the Southern white majority has basically been tricked, been outmaneuvered into secession, that they are basically loyal, and that if given the opportunity, they will reassert themselves locally and bring their own states back into the Union sooner rather than later. And to make sure that that happens, Lincoln believes we need to aggravate Southern sensibilities, Southern here means Southern white sensibilities, as little as possible, including regarding slavery. So Lincoln believes that we need to interfere with slavery as little as possible. He will deal blows to slavery when it seems unavoidable, but he does not see the war as the proper instrument with which to abolish slavery. That is, Stevens completely disagrees. For him, this is an opportunity to do what he would have liked to do for decades, but in his view and in most uh, white Americans' view, the Constitution precluded, which is using federal power to uproot slavery within the slave states. He thinks, therefore, this is a moral opportunity, but he also agrees with people like Frederick Douglass that you cannot win this war, you cannot restore the Union unless you deprive the Confederacy of its principal source of labor. And that means confiscating slaves. So Stevens is consistently ahead of Lincoln in demanding the confiscation of slaves, in demanding the confiscation of all slaves in the Confederacy, eventually in demanding the emancipation of slaves all over the Union, including in the four slave states that remain in the Union, and demanding equal rights for those now emancipated. He stands for those things long before the rest of the Republican Party signs on. Um, And he effectively helps to change public opinion in that direction through his speeches, both in his 
hometown and on the floor of the House of Representatives, speeches that are widely reprinted by newspapers and speeches that are also reprinted in the form of pamphlets that circulate in the North, sometimes by the hundreds of thousands of copies. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is pushing Lincoln left about the radical and revolutionary Republican Thaddeus Stevens. While Lincoln continually capitulated to white interests in the North and South, Stevens knew two things. Freeing the black population of the South would mean winning the war, and that the black population ought to own the land upon which they bled and died for centuries. The thing that I like most, I suppose, or, or like trying to understand in, in how you describe it and, and how Stevens was thinking about it, right, is the idea of uh, what's a union, what's a loyal, you know, how's, how are these uh, particular states loyal or not? Are the states themselves loyal versus the plantation owners? Um, right. uh, did these uh, secessionary states, are they still covered by the Constitution? You know, these arguments become essential to how Stevens thinks about what can be done to the South and to its institutions. Uh, you know, he proposes that the South has seceded is no longer covered by the Constitution. It has become a foreign power. Uh, and then, and consequently, should the Union win, they have all rights of, you know, that invading army to occupy and change whatever it needs to be changed. Um, yes, he stated, that, stated his argument perfectly. Yeah. So, and I liked it very much. <laughs> it made perfect sense to me, right? Um, uh, the opposite happens, basically, uh, for the most part, in Johnson's hands, uh, in, uh, President Andrew Johnson's hands. There isn't reconstruction so much as, as Johnson said, restoration. The plantations were not broken up and given to formerly enslaved people. Uh, the 40 acres and a mule, which is, you know, the, the thing probably most everybody knows, didn't happen. If something like that might have happened, you know, the world might be a different place. Yeah. It's important uh, to understand that the worst things Johnson did didn't even involve the land. Right. Although you're absolutely right that Johnson drove forward the process of returning land that came into the hands of the Union Army to its former owners, despite attempts by other members of the Republican Party to prevent that. But Johnson did far worse than that. Johnson uh, fostered the recreation of white supremacist state legislatures in the South that began to pass extremely repressive laws aiming to restrict the mobility and the choices and the opportunities of African-Americans in the South, even as white mobs attacked uh, African-Americans who sought to stand up for their rights. And Johnson did nothing to stop them. And on the contrary, kept reporting to Congress that uh, the South was adhering very well to the newly established rights of African-Americans. And so Congress has to move over Johnson to impose a degree of military rule to defend actively by way of the army, black lives and black rights. And by the way, the lives and rights of whites in the South who had been loyal to the Union during the Civil War. And Johnson responds by removing those generals one after the other, and replacing them with more pliable generals and generals friendlier to the South. At which point, Stevens becomes a prime mover behind the the, uh, drive to impeach Johnson and brings that case into the Senate and comes within an ace of having Johnson removed. He's stymied by the resistance of a handful of so-called moderate Republicans who won't go along with it. Stevens nonetheless fights for the 14th Amendment, after the 13th Amendment is ratified, 
and calls for the 15th Amendment, though he dies before the 15th Amendment can be passed, which, however, it eventually is. So on one issue after another, Thaddeus Stevens manages to persuade his colleagues, or most of them, to come over to a point of view which they had originally rejected. But on one, they refuse to follow. And that is, as you say, the, the, the confiscation and the division of the largest plantations and their distribution uh, among slaves in the form of small farms. Stevens comes to believe that this is the only way to create a genuinely democratic Republican society in the South, the only way to liberate African-Americans from political intimidation by those who, if they are without land, they will have to go to for jobs. The important point to make, uh, it seems to me here again, is trying to establish the idea of economic egalitarianism, right? The idea that, that the vote, the political equality uh, doesn't really have anything behind it uh, if, if you can't, you know, if you don't have any sort of uh, economic power. And of course, we're living in a world in which the idea that economic power can translate into political power is very live with us. Right. We, right. you know, the subject of money in politics right. is, of course, uh, prominent in the headlines these right. days. And so Thaddeus Stevens was trying to grapple with that in his own way at the time. It's also an anticipation of the idea of reparations, that black people have a right to this land because of the decades and generations of unpaid labor they put into it. That's our show. We'll close with one more from Charles Ives. This is The Cage, performed here in an Ivesian spirit by Kneebody with Theo Blechman from the 2014 release 12 Songs by Charles Ives, for which Ives penned these lyrics. A leopard went around his cage from one side back to the other side. He stopped only when the keeper came around with meat. A boy who'd been there three hours began to wonder, is life anything like that? Again, Bruce Levine's new book, out from Simon & Schuster, is Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. I thank him for taxing his vocal cords by speaking so long with me on tangential things. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 